when I was trying to find a way to write about the war, which so many people have written about, you know, Sassoon, Graves, Owen, have all actually written about their own experiences in the war. And I didn't want to just copy what the combatants had done and try to reimagine it. I wanted to be very honest about my standpoint and write it from the point of view of somebody who is interested and sympathetic and knows a certain amount of about it, but has not been there. And I found that person in William Rivers. Hello and welcome to A Read This. My name's Ash. The voice you just heard was Pat Barker talking about her 1991 novel, Regeneration. 101 years ago, the armistice was signed between the Allied forces and Germany, bringing to an end the First World War. As England celebrated, Susan Owen received a telegram telling her that exactly one week before, her son, the company commander and poet Wilfred Owen, had been killed in action. When news of the armistice reached Robert Graves, along with news of the deaths of Owen and Graves' own comrade in the Welsh Fusiliers, Frank Jones Bateman, it sent Graves walking alone along the dyke above the marshes of Rudlan, an ancient battlefield, the Flodden of Wales, cursing and sobbing and thinking of the dead. Graves himself had been officially listed as dead after being badly wounded at the Battle of the Somme. Another war poet, Siegfried Tassoon, described scenes of people behaving on the day of the armistice in a bank holiday style as a loathsome ending to the loathsome tragedy of the last four years. In his poem, To One Who Was With Me in the War, Sassoon writes, Remembering, we forget, much that was monstrous, much that clogged our souls with clay. Did you say you had read Regeneration? I read Regeneration, but not for years and years, nearer nearer when I was in school than I am I was going to say, was it in school? Because it, it is, wasn't in it's school. It's a bit curriculum now, isn't it? It was not far beyond leaving school, mm. I think. Because it was, what, 91? 1991? 1991, yeah. Yeah. Um, the only book of Pat Barker's I've read. Oh, so you haven't read the following two? No, just read, yet. not read the trilogy, just the first. Yeah. Pat Barker has said in interviews, I had always wanted to write about rivers and shell shock and about the First World War too. That first thing I ever wrote was a terribly bad poem about the First World War when I was 11. So the urge to write was there, but I wanted to wait until I I could find a sufficiently original way of doing it. Her grandfather had served in the war, but in typical fashion didn't speak much about it. Like many veterans, he returned home wounded, albeit with quite an unusual wound, having been stabbed with a bayonet. The young Barker's curiosity in the First World War began here, with a wound and with silence. Silence is everywhere in regeneration, the silent dead that haunt the survivors, and the shell-shocked soldiers who have developed stammers or fallen mute, as well as those who are not saying what they have learnt to hide. Professionalism, British reserve, and that garish need to carry on is keeping all the characters from speaking their minds. However, we begin the novel with the soldier breaking his silence. Regeneration opens with Siegfried Sassoon's notorious soldier's declaration, Subtitled Finished with the War, it was published in July 1917 in the Bradford Pioneer. It reads as follows. I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority, because I believe the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier, convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that this war, upon which I entered as a war of defence and liberation, has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I believe that the purposes for which I and my fellow soldiers entered upon this war should have been so clearly stated as to have it impossible to change them, and that, had this been done, the objects which actuated us would now be attainable by negotiation. 
I have seen and endured the suffering of the troops, and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. I am not protesting against the conduct of the war, but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. On behalf of those who are suffering, I now make this protest against the deception which is being practised on them. Also, I believe that I may help to destroy the callous complacence with which the majority of those at home regard the continuance of agonies which they do not share and which they have not sufficient imagination to realise. The impact of Sassoon's act of defiance was all the greater in view of his war service. He was no closet pacifist, or suspected one. He was a patriot, a happy warrior, and had earned the nickname Mad Jack for his acts of suicidal bravery. Single-handedly at one point capturing a German trench, scattering 60 German soldiers with grenades. Then, instead of sealing the capture by signalling for reinforcements, he sat down in the German trench and started to read a book of poems. So the potential consequences for this treasonous declaration were pretty grim. As we see in Regeneration, in order to stop Sassoon from being court-martialed and imprisoned, Robert Graves, in his own words, made an effort to rig a medical board and have Sassoon declared as being in a state of mental collapse. Dramatic necessity in the novel dictates that Graves is a little bit sidelined, um, much is made of his bumblingly missing the train to Craig Lockhart. He also gets called a coward and ends up kind of playing against Sassoon, saying to his friend Siegfried at one point, a few shells, a few corpses, and you've lost heart. Graves was a lot more tortured by his friend's declaration than is let on here. While he entirely agreed with Siegfried about the political errors and insincerities, and thought his action magnificently courageous, he was very anxious about his friend's physical condition. Sassoon seemed genuinely ill and quite unstable. He was physically frail and claimed to have thrown his military cross into the Mersey, um, although since the cross has been rediscovered in the Sassoon family home. When it came to standing in front of the board, Graves said, Much against my will, I had to appear in the role of a patriot distressed by the mental collapse of a brother in arms, a collapse directly due to the, his magnificent exploits in the trenches. The irony of having to argue to these mad old men that Siegfried was not sane. Painfully conscious of a betrayal of truth and in a bad state of nerves himself, Graves broke down in tears three times during his statement. But it worked. Instead of being court-martialed, Siegfried Sassoon was sent to Craig Lockhart Hospital in Edinburgh. Yeah, we should say that it's not... We don't see any of the trenches in this World no, War One book. we don't. We it's, all about, it's all about the, the trauma. The um, Craig Lockhart Hospital. Yes, which, which is, is near Edinburgh. Yeah, it's our local shell shock hospital. <laughs> well, actually now a university campus. There's another, there's another one as well near me. Is there? Yeah, it's on top of a hill. I can't remember what it's called. But, really? Um, yeah, on the south side. And it took, a, it took in a lot of um, took in a lot of officers mostly who were experiencing right nerves nerves yeah well this is what regeneration is all about the yeah. doctor and his um, colleague were looking into nerve regeneration which always seems a bit like a euphemism yeah, yeah. <laughs> literal nerve regeneration and also um, resolve yeah I must never forget rivers Sassoon wrote in his diary. He's the only man who can save me if I break down again. If I am able to keep going, it will be through him. William Hulse Rivers was born in 1864. His father had a speech therapy practice he had inherited from a lavishly racist and deranged brother-in-law. One of his father's clients was the stuttering Reverend Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, who sometimes visited the Rivers' house when William was a child. Coincidentally, Rivers himself developed a stammer at a young age, something he associated with a buried childhood trauma. There was a flaw 
of his family home he could not recall, even though the rest of the house was all present and correct in his memory. Something happened on that floor, he later said, that interfered with my comfort and happiness. Now anyone drawing a line between a buried trauma and house calls from Lewis Carroll should be warded off. Dodgson didn't like boys, Rivers recalls in Regeneration. In fact, he stayed away from the house when the boys were there. Overhearing his father treating Lewis Carroll, trying to help him overcome his particular stammer, which was focused on the letters MP and most particularly a hard C, Rivers decided to reject his father's methods, namely the focus on calm breathing and on remembering to keep your tongue down. In later life, Rivers would become known for his talking cure, which put very simply was the encouragement of soldiers to discuss and explore their traumas. Robert Graves reflects on Rivers uh, during the time of regeneration, in his memoir, Goodbye to All That. He was now busily engaged with morbid psychology. He had over a hundred neurasthenic cases in his care and diagnosed their condition largely through a study of their dream life, based on Freud's work, though he energetically repudiated Freud's more idiosyncratic theses. His posthumous work, Conflict and Dream, is a record of his labours at Craig Lockhart. Craig Lockhart was open for only 28 months. Formerly a hydropathic hotel, it now houses Edinburgh's Napier University. Treatments for shell shock at the time varied from Rivers' talking cure to electroshock therapy. If you were a soldier being sent home, Craig Lockhart was one of the safest places to end up in. Major William Bryce was commanding officer at Craig Lockhart, who, along with Arthur John Brock, worked alongside Rivers. Brock believed that shell shock was not a purely wartime phenomenon, but rather an acute manifestation of a chronic condition. Unlike Rivers's talking cure, Brock favoured what he called ergotherapy, helping the patients to help themselves by making them feel useful in practical, pragmatic ways. He made arrangements for soldiers to take temporary teaching posts or positions where they could go and work on local farms. Perhaps most interestingly for us literary buffs, it was Brock who launched the Hydra, the hospital magazine named after the many-headed beast slain by Hercules, but also referring to the hospital's previous life as a hydropathic hotel. This magazine was a way for soldiers to share in writing their experiences at the front and to find out what activities were taking place at the hospital. Brock's patient, Wilfred Owen, published his first poem in the Hydra and was the magazine's editor for most of his time at Craig Lockhart. But even at this relatively progressive hospital, a discomfort around psychological injuries could be felt. In the logbooks, the usual diagnosis was neurasthenia, a catch-all diagnosis used to describe mental and physical exhaustion. However, that was always secondary to whatever physical complaint the patient had. Among those reasons given for admission were migraine, compound fracture of the toe and even hemorrhoids, none of which would necessitate a visit to a shell shock hospital. One of those diagnosed with neurasthenia was Wilfred Owen. After being blown into the air by a German shell, he had lain for several days semi-conscious and surrounded by the dismembered remains of a fellow officer. Around the time of his diagnosis, Owen had written to his mother, Do not suppose that I have had a breakdown. I am simply avoiding one. The symptoms exhibited by those returning from the front were far from consistent, and it says a lot about the flexibility and sweep of the word neurasthenia that he was able to accommodate them all. In regeneration, when Sassoon arrives, Rivers knows that he is technically, physically and mentally fit for service, despite the intense grief and horror he has experienced. Then there is a character based on an anonymous patient in Rivers' writings, here given the name Burns. What he has experienced was so vile, so disgusting, that Rivers could find no redeeming feature. His suffering was without dignity, and yes, Rivers knew exactly what Burns meant when he said that it was a joke. 
Here is Rivers describing in 1917 what the patient on whom Burns is based experienced. Such a case is that of a young officer who was flung down by the explosion of a shell so that his face struck the distended abdomen of a German several days dead, the impact of his fall rupturing the swollen corpse. Before he lost consciousness, the patient had clearly realised his situation and knew that the substance which filled his mouth and produced the most horrible sensations of taste and smell was derived from the composed entrails of an enemy. When he came to himself, he vomited profusely and was much shaken, but carried on for several days, vomiting frequently and haunted by the persistent images of taste and smell. Burns can no longer eat without vomiting. Another patient collapses after seeing a fellow patient cut himself shaving. Some scream in the night, some have undergone personality and vocal transformations, others have fallen silent. One of the commonest symptoms was a stammer. For the most part, it is the sheer range of symptoms exhibited in that living museum of ticks and twitches, Craig Lockhart, that communicates the experience of the front. This book is is really it it needs no um, you know grim trenches scene at the start just to really set the tone. You have such a sense of everyone and the people who aren't even who haven't even been at the trenches, people like Rivers Mm -hmm. um, and sort of nurses you get the sense that every character you meet Knows, is basically yeah. burnt out and numb. Yeah, because I think you've just come from... This is the first war... It was the, the war to end all wars, where previously wars had been very... either horribly one-sided affairs, mm. where British army goes out and mows down a whole load of unarmed natives, or it's fighting another civilised nation... And there's rules of engagement, and yeah. it's only so bad it can get. And that's when it all went out the window with automatic weaponry and ranged explosives and mustard gas. Mustard gas. I think it, it felt like all of these nations have been developing these atrocious weapons of war and were just itching to try them out on each other. Yep. That being said, there is one sort of account of the trenches. It comes from Barker's other main character, the fictional Billy Pryor. Pryor is a working-class temporary gentleman who has been in the trenches for three years and has reached the rank of officer. Apparently it is typical in shell-shock treatment that it is the private soldiers that fall mute, fearing retribution or punishment for speaking out of turn, whereas it is the officers who develop a stammer, afraid that saying what they feel will be unacceptable. Rivers therefore finds Pryor unusual, an officer who has fallen mute. One of Barker's challenges was finding ways to provoke her main character, Rivers. His disagreements with Sassoon are gentlemanly, conversational and mild. Everyone, it seems, respected Rivers enormously. Therefore, it was necessary to invent Billy Pryor to get under Rivers' skin and dramatise what would otherwise be his unspoken doubts. Pryor unsettles Rivers by subverting the doctor-patient relationship. His impact seems to precipitate Rivers' own breakdown later in the novel. He also provides us with the closest thing to a scene at the trenches. It comes as Rivers places Pryor under hypnosis. Rivers was well known for the breadth of his methods. His friend Charles Seligman saying, Perhaps no man has ever approached the investigation of the human mind by so many routes. Under hypnosis, we witness the scene which resulted in Pryor being sent to Craig Lockhart. Whilst two of his men are laying a table for a meal, they are blown to bits. In the aftermath, Pryor is shoveling away the rubble and body parts when he comes across a disembodied eye. Holding it up to his fellow soldier, he says, What should we do with this gobstopper? Before collapsing. 
Pryor, when he awakes, is confused and enraged that this memory doesn't contain the awful fountain of guilt he was expecting. The incident with the eye, repulsive as it is, is not unlike many trench experiences, and Pryor cannot understand why it has stuck with him for so long. That image of the disembodied eye and the phrase, what should we do with this gobstopper, will be seen to have a much more insidious association later on, hinted at at this novel and developed further in the second two instalments in the trilogy, The Eye in the Door and The Ghost Road. The disembodied eye, which looks but cannot tell of what it sees, is not only resonant of the silent witnesses filling the beds at Craig Lockhart, but also the problem of historical narration. Barker is faced with the problem of all historical fiction writers. To reconcile her duty to the past, all the more pressing here perhaps with so much trauma, especially trauma in recent memory, with the demands of narrative. I'm sure most people who read historical novels have noticed a tendency for characters based on real-life persons to be a little less mobile than characters in purely fictional novels. The moment your invented historical character meets Julius Caesar or William Shakespeare or Al Capone, there can be a feeling comparable to computer-generated characters interacting with real actors on film. The shadows in the uncanny valley are longest when set against a character jumping out of the furnace of imagination. Because a character you create from scratch is dangerously volatile, capable of anything. But a character called Wilfred Owen is confined or at least coloured by every existing bit of material about Wilfred Owen. Not only the formal record of where he was and when, but the tone of voice that remains in his letters home, the content of his poetry. Barker, of course, knew this and is very clever in choosing which characters to set against each other. Pryor, the most unpredictable and, for want of a better word, mobile character, interacts with the other invented characters and Rivers. Thanks to the real Rivers burning his papers, his fictional representative can go off script. The much better known and better documented poets, Sassoon and Owen, don't interact with Pryor. I know that some people have problems with Barker's depiction of Craig Lockhart, saying that she has contributed to the overstating of Rivers' importance, um, and that the book was briefly threatened with legal action by George Sassoon, the poet's son. Others hotly debate a scene that features revisions to Wilfred Owen's poetry, made by uh, Sassoon. Personally, I think Robert Graves comes off a bit unfairly watery, but that's because of what's left out, not because of anything that's put in his mouth. Given that she is speaking for three major poets at a young age, where they are much less aware of their public persona, it is a remarkable achievement that all three feel authentic. She does get a couple of lucky breaks. One, the lack of material on Rivers, her main character. His biographer said that writing an account of Rivers was comparable to writing one on a not very well-known 9th century saint. She also gets pretty lucky with names. Some of the names of the real people are almost spookily suggestive. Back from the trenches, not to mention back from the dead, is Graves. The healer to whom no channel is closed is Rivers, whose original name, incidentally, on his birth certificate, because it was botched, listed him as William False Rivers Rivers. Rivers, whose favourite terms for the emotional and rational were protopathic and epicritic, fleshed out those ideas with a Henry head. These names slide in very naturally with the protopathic prior and the unrecognisably traumatised Burns. We glimpse inside the mind of Rivers and Sassoon and are initially outside Pryor, evaluating him as his doctor might, yet it is Pryor to whom the sensual world is permitted. It is Pryor who gets the amber lights winking in his beer, Pryor who meets characters outside of Craig Lockhart's like his lover Sarah Lum. Billy Pryor provides Barker with the license to explore the grey areas, the sort of personal experience that one burns in one's private papers. 
He describes to Rivers the threat of getting shelled as you walk across no man's land as sexy. Assuming Rivers doesn't believe him, he explains, You know those men who lurk around in bushes waiting to jump out on unsuspecting ladies and uh, um, display their equipment? It feels a bit like that. A bit like I imagine that feels. I wouldn't like you to think I had any personal experience. And was that your only feeling? Apart from terror, yes. Shall we get back to inhuman detachment? I think it suits us both better. Don't you? Even though anyone could accept that the impact of war would produce all sorts of contrary and incongruous emotion, to put this conversation in the mouth of Owen or Sassoon would seem a bit like bad taste, or perhaps what Pryor mockingly calls frightfully bad form. Not because it is unlikely that either Owen or Sassoon felt sexy at such a moment. Both men had homosexual attachments in and out of the trenches. They were both suicidally heroic fighters, and in their poetry they expressed the strange contrast in emotion that trench life could bring about. In his non-war poetry, Owen wrote in a piece called Shadwell Stare that he was a ghost haunting the steps, and that he, with another ghost, am lain. The Shadwell Stare was a cruising spot for homosexual men. Haunting was slang for cruising, and ghost was slang for a gay man. In an unpublished stanza of the same poem, he wrote, I have lips that are fresh a night, like the gradual tide upon the sands, to feel and follow a man's delight. All this signing has a kind of franco euphemism, if frank euphemism is even possible, in one of Owen's most famous poems. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. Pryor, seemingly heterosexual in this novel at least, nevertheless gets to live the complicated emotional life and compromised sexual life suggested in the poetry of Sassoon and Owen, but not made explicit in their dialogue. Does Wilfred Owen turn up in this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Owen and Sassoon were at Craig Lockhart together. Yeah. That's where they met. Yeah, because um, Wilfred Owen's probably my favourite war poet. Oh, right. Oh, yes, I think you've said. We, yeah. should, we should do. We should do war poetry. Point, yeah. Well, it's um, coming up in November. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, yeah, World War One is... It's a weird one. It's not a war that lends itself so well to being written about in the Second World War, in the same reason there's not that many films about the First World War. Significantly less dramatic. There's just a lot of sitting around being miserable. Um, you read All Quiet on the Western Front. Yep. I love that book. Yeah. I don't want to put you off, but um, you know who else is... You know whose favourite book it is. Is it, is it, was it Adolf Hitler's favourite book? Well, I'm tempted to say close, but I, I don't want to start a political <laughs> riot. It? Donald Trump. Really? Yeah. I thought his favourite book was his own book. <laughs> oh, probably, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's weird to think of him reading a book full stop. I, I think he To just be fair, we'll walk out in the Western Front's quite short. Yeah, no, I, I don't think he's actually read it. I think he's just thought it sounded good. Well, it is a good book. Yeah. I mean, if he, if he really has read it and he really does like it, can't fault him. It's actually a good book. I, re- I read that a couple of years ago um, for the first time. I don't know how I missed it. It was a couple what of years ago. What stuck out was the, the scene with horses. Yes. Um, was... The most, one of the most, um, to say there's an awful lot of violence, that for some reason it made the most lasting impression. Yeah. I think we should, we should talk about that one at some point as well. But yeah, yeah nov- World War I literature, it's not so much thin on the ground, but a lot of them sort of blend into one another. Mm. Because a lot of it is sitting in a trench being sad. Um, God, I've completely forgotten the name of it. What's the, um, what's the play? Journey's End. Journey's End. What do you yeah. think of Journey's End? I've seen so many NAF productions of it that, that it's a bit coloured by that to be honest yeah and I was in a NAF production and I was NAF in it who were so you playing? 
I can't even remember, but the twitchy one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, they all die in the end anyway. Yeah, they all die. Um, I think Blackadder's more affecting. One of the things I bring up about regeneration is that it's, we've started talking about it, but all it's made us do is talk about all the other World War One. Obviously, literature. we've got to Blackadder quickly. Very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's a new record for us. Mm. But I don't know, it doesn't, I, I had to do a bit of research on it before I came today yeah. to remember which World War One story it was. Mm. Uh, that's not as damning as I mean it to be. It's just that a lot of the themes in these books are the same, yeah. which is the putting of young men into a, a meat grinder. Yep. And the general futility of it all. Yeah. General futility was actually one of the commanders <laughs> on, the, on the Eastern Front. It was Haig and general futility. <laughs> and futility was the good one. <laughs> I mentioned earlier Rivers' use of the terms protopathic as against the epicritic. Sassoon is described as a very protopathic young man by one of Rivers' colleagues. Rivers himself is preoccupied with doubts about his theories and early on recalls his pre-war experiments with Henry Head. Rivers and Head had been working on nerve regeneration, Head experimenting painfully on himself, something Rivers recalls in a dream. And even though he knows at the time... He felt excited and knew that he was on the frontier of a new discovery. In the dream, he wishes he could make the experiment stop. Similarly, he seems to feel tortured that the generation of men coming into his care are a sort of sacrificial generation, one that may need to be sacrificed in order to safeguard the next, rather than being healed themselves. Rivers was aware, as a constant background to his work, of a conflict between his belief that the war must be fought to a finished for the sake of the succeeding generations and his horror that such events as those which had led Burn to Burns's breakdown should be allowed to continue. Both Sassoon and Rivers find themselves on rather uncertain ground. Sassoon is convinced that the war is unethical and yet is drawn back to the trenches. Rivers, too, is increasingly aware that the war is unethical, yet reflects that it certainly didn't rest with him to decide whether it continued or not. Rivers at times seems to believe too strongly in the rational power of a soldier, the epicritic side of a soldier, that this side of a man will overcome the trauma, the protopathic side. When Sassoon arrives, he declares, he's a mentally and physically healthy man. It's his duty to go back and it's my duty to see he does. The narration of this historical novel could be described as straining for the epicritic. It must observe impartially what actually occurred. However, the protopathic, as Rivers discovers, will surface in any st story of trauma, as it does here, in Owens and Sassoon's poetry, in the scenes of Billy Pryor trying to heal himself, and in Burns, who escapes one day from Craig Lockhart, and after finding a load of dead animals on barbed wire, arranges them in a circle around a tree, and sits there in the middle, proving Rivers' suspicion that what had happened to him was so horrible that it is out of the reach of rational understanding. Siegfried Sassoon proves to Rivers that the two sides of a person he thought as diametrically opposed, the protopathic and the epicritic, can actually f function in harmony, as Roberta Joan Jackson says, In Sassoon, the experience of the happy warrior fuels the poetry of the bitter pacifist. This integration of what Rivers would label protopathic and epicritic is the source of Sassoon's health, and his power. Rather than the hierarchical separation of emotion and reason, Sassoon presents Rivers with a powerful combination of a covert sexual temptation and the integration of emotion and reason. Literally and figuratively, Sassoon retains his voice. Yeah, I think that it's very hard. It would be hard to write a book like Regeneration about the Second World War. I think there's more, there's more and more arguments coming out that the First World War never really ended. It was just one long war. Calling it two wars is probably a bit disingenuous. It was the same war with half-time. I feel like the Second World War was avoidable. 
You think? Yeah, I don't think it was. I think it's very. But I feel like it was the legacy of the First World War that ignited the Second. You could th- you couldn't have had the fir- the Second World War without the First. Well, no, but just because it roused um, national socialism in Germany doesn't mm. mean that we could have averted the war. I think the, the, the history of the 1920s and the history of Weimar is everybody makes um, the biggest mistakes every single time until yeah. the Second World War happens. The clever hopes expire, as yeah. Auden put it. Yeah, would you, would you, would you recommend... I feel like we've talked around this book a lot, but not about Well, there's, there's so much to go at. We haven't really talked about homosexuality, which is another big theme there's um the supposed homosexuality that well the flirtation with homosexuality of Siegfried Sassoon who I think mm-hmm. did have plenty of male affairs um the um disavowing of homosexuality of Graves yeah which is a bit abrupt and odd yeah did come out of nowhere Owen as well was yeah. homosexual and it looks like Rivers kind of is or was or, or it seems like Sassoon's always trying to cagely ask him whether or not he is, he um, yeah, because this is this this is a time when homosexuality was very much illegal under decency laws. Yeah, so these were. But it, there's a strange. There's, there's the attitude of the nineteen nineteen hundreds and the nineteen tens being very gay mm. in both meanings of the word, where you would have there was there there, there came a point when men could no longer walk hand in hand you know there's like that's like a noted historical happening around the turn of the century really and there became a sort of reaction against i feel like homosexuality had always been a part of social fabric Mm. but then it became a moral outcry and it became outlawed and you know it's not the the history of that time i don't know a lot about in that context but i know that there there came a point when it was suddenly i'd really like to know more about this because Sorry to hark back to that poem again, but in um, that Auden poem, he started writing it in a, a gay bar in New York, mm-hmm. and it's, well, it's 1939, it's the outbreak of the Second World War. And I just, I'd really like to know, were, were those kinds of things around in England? It sounds like he had a harder time of it in England as a gay man than in America, but that's that's just my reading of a couple of biographical yeah. It's about him. I can honestly say I have no so, idea. Uh, I've, I've, I'd love to find out a bit more. But yeah, in this, homo- homosexuality adds just a n- one more thing that characters can't quite talk about. There's uh, a lot of there's a lot of not talking about yeah. in this book that has a lot of talking in it. And a lot of literal and otherwise frayed nerves about not being able to get round to talking about the, the most pressing issue. In Goodbye to All That, Robert Graves writes, England looked strange to us returned soldiers. We could not understand the war madness that ran wild everywhere, looking for a pseudo-military outlet. The civilians talked a foreign language, and it was a newspaper language. I found serious conversation with my parents all but impossible. Quotations from a single typical document of this time will be enough to show what we were facing. A Mother's Answer to a Common Soldier by A Little Mother. A Message to the Pacifists a message to the bereaved, a message to the trenches. To the editor of the Morning Post. Sir, as a mother of an only child, a son who was early and eager to do his duty, may I be permitted to reply to Tommy Atkins, whose letter appeared in your issue of the 9th? Perhaps he will kindly convey to his friends in the trenches, not what the government thinks, not what the pacifists think, but what the mothers of the British race think of our fighting men. It is a voice which demands to be heard, 
seeing that we play the most important part in the history of the world, for it is we who mother the men, who have to uphold the honour and tradition not only of our empire but of the whole civilised world. To the man who pathetically calls himself a common soldier, may I say that we women who demand to be heard will tolerate no such cry as peace, peace, when there is no peace. The corn that will wave over the land, watered by the blood of our brave lads, shall testify to the future that their blood was not spilt in vain. We need no marble monuments to remind us. We only need that force of character behind all motives to see this monstrous world tragedy brought to a victorious ending. The blood of the dead and the dying, the blood of the common soldier from his slight wounds, will not cry to us in vain. They have all done their share, and we as women will do ours without murmuring and without complaint. Send the pacifists to us, and we shall very soon show them, and show the world that in our homes at least there shall be no sitting at home warm and cosy in the winter, cool and comfy in the summer. There is only one temperature for the women of the British race, and that is white heat. With those who disgrace the sacred trust of motherhood, we have nothing in common. Our ears are not deaf to the cry that is ever ascending from the battlefield from men of flesh and blood, whose indomitable courage is borne to us, so to speak, on every blast of the wind. We women pass on the human ammunition of our only sons to fill the gap, so that when the common soldier looks back before going over the top, he may see the women of the British race at his heels, reliable, dependent, uncomplaining. And so on. The letter is signed, A Little Mother, and was much celebrated. Florence Nightingale did great and grand things for the soldiers of her day, but no woman has done more than the little mother, whose now famous letter in the Morning Post has spread like wildfire from trench to trench. I hope to God it will be handed down in history, for nothing like it has ever been has ever made such an impression on our fighting men. I defy any man to feel weak-hearted after reading it. My God, she makes us die happy. Signed, One Who Has Fought and Bled. Worthy of far more than a passing notice, it ought to be reprinted and sent out to every man at the front. It is a masterpiece, and fills one with pride, noble, level-headed, and pathetic to a, a degree. Signed, Severely Wounded. I have lost my two dear boys, but since I was shown the little mother's beautiful le letter, a resignation too perfect to describe has calmed all my aching sorrow, and I would now gladly give my sons twice over. Signed, A Bereaved Mother. The letter's origins are not quite clear and have been long suspected to be an act of covert propaganda. One reason that the letter could be, have been so seemed so grotesque to injured officers in particular was the maternal feelings that the trenches gave rise to. At one point in Regeneration, Barker writes, In some ways, the experience of these young men paralleled the experience of the very old. They looked back on intense memories and felt lonely because there was nobody left alive who'd been there but they also paralleled the experience of women. According to Rivers in the novel, men who broke down or cried or admitted to feeling fear were sissies, weaklings, failures, not men. And yet he himself was a product of the same system, even perhaps in a rather extreme product. Certainly the rigorous repression of emotion and desire had been the constant theme of his adult life. In advising his young patients to abandon the attempt at repression and to let themselves feel the pity and terror their war experience inevitably evoked, he was excavating the ground he stood on. One of the paradoxes of the war, one of the many, was that this most brutal of conflicts could set up a relationship between officers and men that was domestic, caring, maternal. When Owen first approaches Sassoon at Craig Lockhart, 
He does so to try and get a copy of Sassoon's poems signed to send to his mother. In another scene, Rivers has to look after his brother's hens. God, I hate hens, he says. Hard quills, clammy flesh, blood-red combs. We have a strong representation here of the horror of maternal responsibility. If you ever held a hen or even a baby, you might have a sense of this. Horribly delicate, horribly clumsy thing. How easily it could injure itself, and how easily you could accidentally cause an injury just by holding it or dropping it. As Rivers said, Hens had a curious way of not thriving. They seemed to be subject to a truly phenomenal range of diseases and to take a perverse pleasure in working their way down the list. He goes on to think, Any explanation of war neurosis must account for the fact that this apparently intensely masculine life of war and danger and hardship produced in men the same disorders that women suffered from in peace, which must have been all the more intense and surprising, because, as Pat Barker said in an interview, they must have been the last generation of men who could talk about manliness without going ugh inside. The year Rivers spent at Craig Lockhart War Hospital changed him enormously, said Barker. It's a very gloomy, claustrophobic place, and relationships with the patients were very intense. He'd been a man very objectively rational, someone who found it very difficult to integrate his emotions with the rest of his life, very much a product of his Victorian and Edwardian education. He learnt to integrate his nurturing side. I don't like to call it feminine, but what you really have is a sense of mothering the men, not fathering. When Billy Pryor meets the yellow-skinned munitions worker Sarah Lum, he discovers that women in wartime have had to occupy both masculine and female roles, rather like men at the front. According to Karen Westman, if soldiers are made feminine by their experiences in the trenches, officers have become maternal figures who provide domestic comfort and emotional support as much as stern patriarchs who mete out justice. Again, Rivers' ethnographic perspective finds a peacetime analogue for the officers' lives, men who spend so much time worrying about socks, boots, blisters, food, hot drinks, that they acquire a perpetually harried expression. Rivers had only ever seen that look in one other place, in the public wards of hospitals, on the faces of women bringing up large families on very low incomes. Two links to previous podcasts, actually. Um, Rivers um, came up in the Auden um, episode I did because uh, Auden met him um, oh. in Berlin when he was a young 20 year old scoundrel um, spoffing his way through Weimar orgies um, and in um, the water music episode when uh, somebody drove a boat up him <laughs> yeah um, no what was the other one? Oh yes do you remember a scene in it um, it's quite throwaway so you might not uh, Graves reappears towards the end and says that uh, he's called it off with his, um, not boyfriend, but person he's this, yeah. interested in called Peter. Yeah. He calls him Peter because he's been caught soliciting out of an army, outside an army barracks. Oh. And he makes the point very clear to Siegfried Sassoon that from now on he is completely heterosexual and he won't be going out with any men and he's cut all ties with Peter. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of strange scene and Siegfried's a bit thrown by it. Um do you remember, I, I can't actually remember which episode we started talking about Robert Graves, but I, I read uh, Goodbye to All That, his mm-hmm. memoir, and I told you about, in his boarding school, him striking up a relationship with a, I can't remember how old he the boy is, but it's like 12 or 14. Yes, we and did he's talk a, he's about He's like a this. senior, Yeah, and he's called into the headmaster's office like a, a man remonstrating with his brother-in-law, saying... You must stop carrying on in this ridiculous way. Yeah. The family will fall apart, sort of manner. That's that boy. Really? Rivers? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 not Rivers. Um, Peter. 
who was oh, caught listing outside the of Malmö same Berg. Peter. Yeah, so Graves uh, wrote letters to Peter, who's oh. not really called Peter. Peter's a name he yeah. gave him to hide his identity. Um, he uh, he was oh, writing goodness. to Peter from the trenches, um, and then obviously discovered that Peter wasn't as innocent as all that. Wow. Okay, that's some. In- in- so there's a little bit of um, uh, autobiography. According to Karen Westman, any tendencies towards homosexual love were condemned and often connected to other antisocial behaviour. A man who questioned the war and espoused pacifism, for example, was labelled a degenerate, a common term for someone who'd expressed homosexual behaviour. Graves receives the news about Peter in the very same post he receives Sassoon's declaration. He's already courting Nancy Nicholson by the times he talks to Sassoon. Peter, he says, is being sent to Rivers to be cured, of course. The line between fatherly love, camaraderie and what some critics called homosocial love is quite blurred. There is something ardent about Wilfred Owen's letters to Siegfried Sassoon, yet also characteristic of the fan admiring the established poet. I hold you as Keats and Christ and Elijah and my colonel and my father confessor and Amenophis IV in profile. Once again, it is Billy Pryor who gets the developed sensual life. After having sex with Sarah Lum, later, they lay down side by side, still gazing at each other. At this distance, her eyes merged into a single eye, fringed by lashes like prehistoric vegetation, a mysterious, scarcely human pool. They lay like that for ten or fifteen minutes, neither of them wanting to hurry, amazed at the time that lay ahead. Men said they didn't tell their women about France because they didn't want to worry them, but it was more than that. He needed her ignorance to hide in. Yet at the same time, he wanted to know and be known as deeply as possible. And the two desires were irreconcilable. Pat Barker has elaborated on such conflicting desires in interviews. You've got a situation where part of the paradox of Sassoon's position, and indeed of Wilfred Owen's, is that they are simultaneously condemning the war wholeheartedly and claiming for the combatant a very special, superior and unique form of knowledge, which they are quite implicitly saying is valuable that you cannot know what we know, and what unites us is something you cannot enter. If that is true, of course, then there is no reason for arguing against the war. We should want more and more men to be in it, so they have the benefit of this unique experience. There was a single, I think it was maybe one or two bombs dropped in Edinburgh during the First World War. Oh really, whereabouts? There was one, there was there was a Zeppelin raid, just oh, okay. the one, and they dropped a bomb on the grass market. Really? I think they're probably aiming for the castle, but they, um, I think they... I think it killed one man who'd actually left the pub to shout at the Zeppelin. <laughs> You're kidding. No, I think um, if, if, if you go down to the grass market, there's a plaque on the ground where the bomb hit. He tried. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think it's just one of those apocryphal tales, but I think he was really annoyed at the noise, so he'd gone out to shout. Are you sure they were aiming at the castle? Are you sure that <laughs> up in the Zeppelin went, we got him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, Zeppelins were not... There was literally a man hand-dropping a bomb yeah. out the side of a... A hot air balloon. What a shot. <laughs> but yeah, I think there was um there was the one bombing raid on Edinburgh during the First World War. And it was very long range, it was very mm. unexpected. I think that was Glasgow got the the brunt of it, I think, as a industrial shipping port. Yeah. But yeah, Edinburgh's Edinburgh's history of the wars, I think, is mostly through the hospitals mm. and through the um the military battalion that was based at the castle. Yeah. It's good. Um, anyone who's ever in Edinburgh, it's a good military history museum. It's the only reason to pay the extortionate amount of money to actually get into the castle. To get into the castle, yeah. When Sassoon asks Wilfred Owen why he hasn't written about the trenches in his poetry, Owen stammers that poetry is something 
to take refuge in. Elaborating, he says, sometimes when you're alone, in the trenches I mean, at night you get the sense of something ancient, as if the trenches had always been there. You know, one trench we held, it had skulls in the side. You looked back along and, like mushrooms. And you know, it was actually easier to believe they were men from Marlborough's army than to think they had been alive two years ago. It's as if all other wars had somehow distilled themselves into this war. And that makes it something you almost can't challenge. It's like a very deep voice saying, run along, little man, be thankful if you survive. It seems as if to the first wave of uh, First World War poets that England was preserved in classical terms. Sassoon and Graves were initially writing pastoral poems about England in their first days of war service. And the sort of poetry that Owen was still writing when he reaches Craig Lockhart is similar. Perhaps this would have dismayed Rivers, who wrote, The advice which has usually been given to my patients in other hospitals is that they should endeavour to banish all thoughts of the war from their minds. In some cases, all conversation between patients or with visitors about the war is strictly forbidden, and the patients are instructed to lead their thoughts to other topics, to beautiful scenery and other pleasant aspects of experience. It is a measure of Sassoon's development that he accuses Graves of being incapable of recognising rhetoric, and indeed, in Goodbye to All That, Graves states... Lloyd George was up in the air at one of his glory of the Welsh Hills speeches. The power of his rhetoric amazed me. The substance of the speech may be commonplace, idle and false, but I had to fight hard against abandoning myself with the rest of his audience. Luckily, his common sense won out and he saw that Lloyd George had the eyes of a sleepwalker. And yet, after the war, Graves buried himself in the mythic. Sassoon's insistence that Wilfred Owen portrays the realism of the war illustrates perhaps why he got on so well with Rivers, who wrote... It is as if the process of repression keeps the painful memories or thoughts under a kind of pressure during the day, accumulating such energy by night that they race through the mind with abnormal speed and violence when the patient is wakeful or take the most vivid and painful forms when expressed by the imagery of dreams. I advocate the facing of painful memories and deprecate the ostrich-like policy of attempting to banish them from the mind. You get a real sense through it that um, you, you have... A a series of very intelligent people, mm-hmm. not just poets, but rivers, for yeah. example, floating around and chatting to each other. Well, you remember, before we go on, you've got to remember that everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of the people who went to fight were, they were just, oh, it's all pals from uni. Yeah. We'll all go up and join together and we'll have a laugh. Yeah. And they all died. So these were, it's, this wasn't always, this wasn't just the war of the working classes being conscripted to be thrown into the the mix this was it was everybody from every social strata probably the last time it happened where everybody from top to bottom was thrown in the first world war and i think because you got a lot of people who'd made it through the university system or were making it through it's probably why you ended up with this war being the one that produced the most war poets mm. because you actually had intellectuals who joined up to accomplish something yeah but they'd ended up having an awful time and then they channeled that into their art you get a real sense going through it that everyone is unable to speak plainly about the war. Apart from maybe Siegfried. I think it's... And even he sounds like he's holding back a bit. Well, everybody's still... A, everyone's still quite uptight mm. back in the day. Nobody, nobody's really willing to acknowledge just how awful it is. Yeah. Because that would be some sort of slight against something. It or would, defeat, even. Yeah, it would be accepting you were defeated or accepting that your stiff upper lip had wavered a little bit. Yeah. I think they expected, oh, we can, you know, we can face this down. Like we face down every other war. Yeah. 
but this was the first one, or at least the first one that was turning out shell shock victims in such massive numbers. In Sassoon's declaration of a soldier, he stated that the general public had not the sufficient imagination to realise reality of life in the trenches. Barker acknowledges this as part of her challenge. She knows that as a non-combatant, she cannot realise with all verisimilitude life in the trenches, and so shows us its results in the controlled life of the hospital. According to Rob Nixon, the novel also belongs to another tradition, the tradition of literary realism. Miss Barker is a writer who is content to confront a cruel reality without polemics, without even visible anger, and without evident artifice. This novel, like others, is testimony to the persistent vitality of that kind of writing. Fashions change, theories emerge and fade, but the realistic writer goes on believing that plain writing, energised by the named things of the world, can make imagined places actual and open other lives to the responsive reader, and that by living those lives through words, a reader might be changed. Pat Barker must believe that, or she wouldn't write as she does. I believe it too. I think that is absolute cockwash. And if Pat Barker had been content to confront a cruel reality without polemics, anger or artifice, I think she'd have written this novel aged 11. I don't know what Rob Nixon is on about, to be honest. and I don't, can't imagine that he's actually read the book. I think Pat Barker shows plenty of artifice, artifice in its proper definition as artful skill, as opposed to the way that Nixon's using it in its modern definition as something just a bit wanky. Barker shows a great deal of artful skill, her careful way of infiltrating history with fiction, the way that she brings several repressed themes into leaf, like, in Larkin's words, something almost being said, and the very unshowy way she structures her book. One very clever thing that she does is open and close the novel with historical documents, implying that what lies between them is something uncensored and unrepressed. Um, we also meet a not-as-nice shell shock um healer yeah um another real character lewis yeland yeah his, his name is pronounced i think he's canadian and he um we well, said the the horses scene in um all quiet on the western front really really stands out well in a book that's about um critically ill men hmm. and doomed men this scene stands out the most and it's um i think it's a, a mute do you remember this I do remember. Yeland this. brings Rivers in to observe him showing how effective electroshock therapy is. Yes. On a shell shocked um soldier who's become mute and it's really grim. Yeah. Um grimmer than any kind of screen portrayal I've seen of um electroshock. Yeah, well it's it is it Stuff. is literally just electrocuting people. It's yeah. not it's no there's no it's not more or less subtle than that. It's no. just it is just running current through somebody. So no, I don't think I think that was proven to not work distressingly late mm. as well. Into the second half of the twentieth century, people were still performing electroshock. Yeah. They tried to cure homosexuality with it. Yeah. Um tried to cure most things with it. Yeah, I think it's the sort of spiritual successor to trepanning with the sort of you know, it's time for you know, I think it it was the Oh, we've we've got electroshock now. We we can stop doing lobotomies. Mm. So it's probably better than a lobotomy, but you know it's a kind of remnant of a. People forget the psychology at a very very dark birth, because yeah. ele electroshock therapy is very closely associated with the birth of psychology. Where when they realised the brain ran electricity, they were like, oh, we can shock people better. Mm. And yeah, and I think the shell shock victims. Have you ever seen a film called The Ninth Configuration? No, it's very I heard of it. It's a weird one. It's um an American military asylum in Washington State, 
and there is a an army psychiatrist is sent to this asylum to help out because they're struggling mm. and then it slowly becomes clear that maybe he isn't who he says he is and all of these people are stark raving mad in very stereotypical ways but they're all that way for a reason there's um guy who's trying to put on shakespeare with dogs <laughs> as a as a plot thread but yeah and there's bits in that about the the barbaric treatment of soldiers who come back from war mm. and about oh they've, they've gone mad better you know they're they're rough and ready men they can take a bit of a knock yeah so i think they're much more much more brutal with psychologically damaged soldiers than they would be a psychologically damaged civilian yeah because they're machines they need to yeah, need to get them back on the front they we need got, to function again yeah, yeah we got um you know we got men dropping like flies out there we need yeah need more more meat for the meat grinder but witnessing electroshock therapy proves to rivers not that he is infallible but that his methods are closer to yeelands that he wants the use of a metal bit in the patient's mouth makes Rivers think of it as a kind of oral rape, leading him to dwell on what his talking cure has forced out of his own patient's mouths. But by this time we see that it is Rivers that has the greatest ethical dilemma of anyone in the book. As Roberta Joan Jackson says, Rivers is intended to be the central consciousness in the book, not Sassoon. Though Siegfried Sassoon was tremendously heroic, says Roberta Joan Jackson, today we accept almost too easily that he was right in his pacifist views about the war whereas W.H.R. Rivers's pressure was very modern, to make soldiers well so they could return to the trenches. Rivers died shortly after the war. Prefacing Rivers's posthumous Medicine, Magic and Religion, Sassoon wrote, I would very much like to meet Rivers in the next life. It is difficult to believe that such a man as he could be extinguished. you seen my boy Jack? Yes. Again, it's another one I've seen some really bad well, productions of. Rudyard Kipling, mm. his role as national war poet is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, he he, he sort of reached the end of his dream of empire in, with the war. Yeah, but he was still, he still had this kind of role in mm. the country as he was involved in the government in some way. Y- some kind of national figurehead. Of what, drumming up spirits? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's very antithetical to what he was writing about previously i oh, well, in in a sense it fits well with what he was writing in india mm-hmm. um well in the sense that it's our, our god-given right to win, win this war yeah, yeah and you know i mean he, he attempted to write from the perspective of different classes and different nations it never came off well but no i mean he he did weird things like used vernacular of of cultures that he knew very little of have you read kim uh yeah yeah Kim's a bit grim. Kim's a bit grim. Uh, the man who would be king isn't grim. <laughs> the man who would be king is a great... Actually, that's one we should do as a film book one. Oh, that's a good film. It's a good book as well. Yeah. I think for anyone... I, I just skimmed over it, but for anyone who doesn't know, uh, My Boy Jack is the story of Rudyard Kipling, famous author, poet, playwright, who his son basically used his position as Rudyard Kipling's son to dodge the medical exam as someone who had terrible eyesight and join yeah. up as an officer and go to war and who was then killed. Mm. And it's all about how Rudyard Kipling had this idea of what the war was and how it was supposed to go, but yet wouldn't let his son join up. And it's another, it's, it's a good look at the, the war through a sort of lyrical lens. Yeah. As to what it meant to creative types. Orwell said that um, Kipling wrote good bad poems and defied a <laughs> good bad poem as a graceful monument to the obvious <laughs> good phrase 
yeah. Oh, well, I had a lot of opinions about other writers. I find out more and more. It's good that it's, it's in an article trashing um, T.S. Eliot's opinion of um, Kipling. Very much defending Kipling, but still. T.S. Eliot was defending Kipling? No, no. T.S. Eliot was... I think if I, if I read Orwell's, or I can remember Orwell's article correctly, I think he's accusing T.S. Eliot of not actually drawing a line in the sand of what his opinion of Kipling is. Okay. And he's... Being on the fence He's very Kipling. clear saying Kipling has lots of positives. He has certain um, attitudes which are uh, abhorrent. Um, he wasn't a fascist, which he's often accused of. I don't really know the, the history of this. Yeah. This is just what Orwell's saying. Um, well, fascism was fairly popular in Britain in the 1910s. Well, I think Eliot was accused of, of um, well, I think fascism. A lot of fascism people in the 1920s and into the 30s who were active in the 1910s mm. came out in support of Hitler. Because they were just, oh, you look up, he's he's doing it. He's putting Germany back together. Yeah. A lot of anti-Semites. Yes. On this, on our, in our um, borders. Yeah, well, I think it's very easy to be anti-Semitic when you're... But when, Do when, finish that. When you have this um, <laughs> this notion about your your empire. Yeah. You know, I think that it's even, it pervades into politics even now where the left and the right still are dogged mm. by accusations of anti-Semitism. Yeah, it it seems like it was a kind of trendy, casual attitude to have. Then Hitler came along and everyone who was an anti-Semite before 1939 was going, ah, yeah, no, I was just kidding around. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the, of the fates of the poets um, involved two sort of happy endings, I suppose. Mm. Uh, Wilfred Owen, of course, died just before the end of... Yeah, it was just a couple of months, days, I think. Was it, was it months or weeks? I know it was distressingly soon. Well, because you hear about the people who died after the armistice because the news hadn't gotten to them. Yeah. Which is awful. I know, terrible. It's also very interesting because you see how, obviously, Wilfred Owen's career as a poet was short because of his lifespan. Mm -hmm. But also, he'd, he'd been writing poetry before he gets sent back to Craig Lockhart mm -hmm. to recover from shell shock. It's his meeting with Sassoon that changes the nature of his poetry completely. And we're only in... We're already in 1917. Yeah. He's dead a year, the following in year. yeah. And it's, the, it's those poems written in those god-awful few months in between. Yeah. That, are, that sort of shape is... A lot of the poetry carries weight. It's classical war poetry. Because these people are, are conscripted. Mm. They don't have the choice. It's not like they chose to go out there. Yeah. You do kind of choose to join the Marines these days. Nobody's forcing you to do it. So it does have a different kind of motivation behind it. So I think a lot, a lot of war poetry is, like, it's it's a massive generalization, but a lot of First World War poetry is, look at us poor young boys mm. out here in the prime of our lives getting blown up and shot. Rupert Brooke. Yeah. Although, I mean, not look at us being blown up and shot, look how glorious we are. Like swimmers into water leaping, or whatever There'll it is. There'll be some, God, how does it go? Some There'll corner some of some corner. forgotten field that will be forever England. Yeah. Oof. It reads like that stuff. That that actually reads like um, like the declarations given beforehand of like suicide bombers. You yeah. Know, it's it's like possessed with this kind of zeal. Yeah, religious and um, uh, nationalistic zeal. Nationalistic is the right word, I think. Um, and it's, it really leaves a bad taste in the mouth now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if you take the war out of it, it, it's sort of, it's got its, I don't know, it's rousing. 
it sounds it sounds like a sort of speech a warlord in Shakespeare might give. Yeah, you know, but as soon as you think about the context, it's a bit grim. Yeah, but the, these were it's a country facing assimilation with a foreign power. Mm. It's the kind of stuff you probably would write if you were desperate. Well, if you still had a kind of belief, I think he was still in the jolly hockey sticks phase of like, let's go and the nineteen fourteen to 19, Christmas, very 1914. much nineteen fourteen, yeah. Where go on? We'll we'll bop them all and be back before Christmas. Well, yeah, knock the hun to pieces and then you know four years later, yeah. And he died from something like an insect bite. Oh, it was very very easy to die in the trenches. No, he wasn't in the trenches. He was swimming somewhere. Really, he died of an insect bite after yeah. the war. I can't remember if it was after the war or he was on leave. Either way, he died during the war, but of something during the war, semi-innocuous. Of nothing to do with the war, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, should we um, leave that one there? Yeah. yeah. I definitely rec- I definitely recommend it. and it's. Uh, I feel a, like I need to read it again. Really though. interesting introduction to um, three literary um, people of interest, Sassoon, Owen, and Graves. Although I do think Graves comes off. He comes off as, I tell you what, he he comes off as like the person in the horror film who's there to go, cool, what a weird place, you know. (laughs) And then dies first. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. No, but that would be his role in the horror film. If he was in a horror film, yeah, but he turns up to Craig Lockhart and he says something like, golly, look at the size of it. It's like, I don't think he'd have said that. I think he'd have already known <laughs> how big it was. Or he'd have seen somewhere larger before. And he's shepherding in someone who's coming for treatment. I don't think he'd be going, gosh, imposing, isn't it? Um, used to be a hydropathic centre. <laughs> Here, let me read to you from, yeah. the, from the brochure. Exactly. I recommend. I recommend and a reread for me. A sombre one. Yeah. Well, I think we've definitely decided we, we should definitely do Wilfred Owen. Absolutely. Yeah. Do, do, do some poets. Let's do some poets. And on that note, farewell. Thank you very much for listening to Ear Read This. Um, we'll be back soon with, I think, an episode on Wilfred Owen. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This. If not, leave us a review on iTunes or uh, find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Ear Read This for all of those. We'll be back very soon. In the meantime, happy reading. <laughs>